a tremendous joy of reconciliation and togetherness. And the very word tshuva, tshuva does not mean repentance, literally. Tshuva means returning. That's the translation of the word. And it's all about returning to Hashem and returning uh, your godly soul to its source. And therefore, there's a source of great, great joy and great, great simcha. That's important because sometimes tshuva can make a person anxious and depressed and scared. And there are different negative things that might be associated with it. And you have to have a, a broader and a deeper picture of what tshuva is about. It is fundamentally a very, very positive thing. And it's a great gift that Hashem has given us uh, that we're able to grow and change and uh, all of the things that we've done that may not have been so good do not really reflect our true selves. Our true selves are holy and good and uh, tshuva is returning to God and also returning to you, returning to the real, the real you. So that's uh, an important uh, thing to keep in mind. Uh, but going back to uh, our, our more prosaic uh, topics. We've been talking about marriage and we had a lot of digressions about the negatives of who you can't marry. Uh, I have one more point I want to make about this. And this is a point that for some reason, I, I mean, I've alluded to it, uh, people have a lot of difficulty understanding whether it's you know, women or men, just how luckily they don't get it. There's a very important difference between a permissive marriage and a valid but impermissible marriage. Meaning the following. A marriage may be totally forbidden, but it is still valid in the sense that it needs to get. Let me give you an example. If a Kohen marries a divorced woman, that is a sin, that is a prohibited marriage. But it is valid, not in the sense that they can live together, they have to get divorced but it's valid that they need a divorce, they need a get. In other words, there are two types of prohibited unions. Some prohibited unions are invalid and they don't even need a get, there is no marriage at all. Other prohibited relationships are prohibited, but they do, after the fact, constitute a marriage which must be dissolved. Let me give you an example of each. If a Jew marries, quotation marks, a non-Jew, whether Jewish man, non-Jewish woman, or non-Jewish man and Jewish woman, that is invalid. That is not a marriage. You don't need a get. You don't need anything. They are not married. Legally, maybe yes, maybe not, but halakhically, there is nothing. By contrast, if a Kohen marries a divorced woman, that is prohibited. It is prohibited, but it is valid. Now, when I say valid, I don't mean they're allowed to live together. They're not. But in order to dissolve the marriage, there has to be a get. It is an absolute marriage until there is a get. Incest, God forbid. If a mother were to marry a son or a father were to marry a daughter, that's totally invalid. That is not a marriage. Okay, so you have to differentiate. Oh, oh, another. I'll give you another example. Let's say they had a marriage in front of two kosher witnesses, but they didn't have a kasuba, meaning they didn't sign the kasuba. We'll discuss what the kasuba is. That is absolutely prohibited. They are not allowed to remain under the same roof until they do a kasuba. That's 100% true. But 
the marriage is still valid in the sense that in order for her to be free to marry somebody else, there has to be a get. As they say, for some reason, uh, people have difficulty grasping this distinction. So the statement that people often say that without a ksuba, it's not a valid marriage, that is not a true statement. Even without a ksuba, it is a valid marriage. But the word valid also has to be understood. By valid, I don't mean they're allowed to stay married. They are not allowed to stay married. When I say valid, but by valid, I mean that in order to terminate the marriage, they do need a get, meaning if somebody were to live with her but before she gets a get, that would be an avera of adultery. Right? So valid, again, it's a little confusing in English because valid has the connotation of okay. That's not what I mean. When I say valid, I just mean a get is necessary for its termination, but it is a prohibited union. So you have to differentiate between, on one side, marriage to a goy or marriage that is incestuous which is totally zero, versus, let's say, a Kohen marrying a divorced woman, or any marriage without a kesuva, which is a prohibited relationship. Of course, in the case of a kesuva, you could fix it. Just do a kesuva, right? then you fixed it. But until you fix it, it is a prohibited relationship, but it is still valid in the sense that you need to get. On the other hand, if a marriage took place without kosher witnesses, I Shomer Shabbos witnesses, that is totally invalid. Okay, that doesn't need a get. Okay, so there are these subtle distinctions between invalid marriages, which are zero, and valid marriages, which are prohibited unions. Did you want to say? Something? Yeah, but how can you? Uh, no, that's not the whole, whole purpose. Uh, I mean, again, I mean, she may have difficulty proving that she was married without a ketubah, that, that's true, but her, a woman's right to a get, to the extent she has a right to a get, does not depend on there being a ketubah. If, any, if anything, it's the other way around. If she doesn't have a ketubah, it might be easier to get a get because the whole marriage is prohibited. <laughs> In other words, if there's a real pro- permissible marriage, then she might have trouble uh, getting a get. Not even know she's married. Uh, well, you're right. That may be difficult. But let's say she produces two witnesses that were there when the, when, the bra- when the groom gave her a ring. And they're kosher witnesses. So, you know, she could prove that she was married. Now, again, it's unusual. Maybe I'm giving you a theoretical case that you'll never find. And I, I agree. But theoretically, uh, a marriage can be, again, kosher. This is very misleading. Kosher in the sense of valid. A marriage can be kosher even when it's treif. Even when it's prohibited, it can be kosher in the sense that you need to get. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you first. Yeah. For, for Yael's point, when people's houses burn down, not like it should never have to pass. Yes. Like, there are issues where, like, somebody's house burns down and the ketubah burns with it. Yep. So then it's somebody that had a legal marriage. Like, they might all be like kosher. They want to stay married. They don't want to stay married, whatever. But, like, the point is that, like, she has no ketubah document, but those same people who are at her wedding can still come yep. forward and say, yeah, they got married. She's just Right now. right right now that's the case where there was a ksuba but I, I'm making the point even if there wasn't a ksuba to begin with it would be the same thing did you want to say yeah um, if, if there's a prohibited marriage are, do you, are both the woman and the man both sinning yes so what if the man refuses to give a divorce 
So in the case of a prohibited marriage, it, it really depends. Uh, no, a a Beit Din is permitted to physically coerce a man to give a get, including by beating him and the like. Oh. So in Israel, the man could go to jail. Now the problem is in Chutzlaretz, even though theoretically a Beit Din could do these things, practically they cannot. So there may be a problem. And if the woman is stuck against her will, obviously she's not, she's not guilty of the sin in that case because uh, she doesn't have a choice. But uh, in Eretz Yisrael, at least in theory, they could, uh, the, the, the rabbinic courts could do something. Okay? Yes. Uh, yes. Now, uh, not, all, not all the time, but yes, there are men who are in jail because they have not given gets to their wives. Someone just got released after 19 years. Did he give a gift or didn't? Uh, no, um, <laughs> still this. She went to an independent rabbi, and he annulled her. He said that her marriage is null and void. Yeah. She feels that she's no longer. Okay. You. Uh, all right. Yeah. 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 We'll 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 talk about that a lot. We'll, we will talk about that extensively. The whole Aguna problem, the issue of annulments, and the like. Okay. But today, uh, you know, I want to talk about some of the positive ideas of marriage. I want to take you through. Uh, a Jewish marriage ceremony and a ketubah, to tell you what a ketubah is, or kisuba, ketubah, however you want to pronounce it, uh, and the like. Right? And, uh, and uh, the thing you need to understand is this. Um, you need to differentiate between, yeah, I was saying, you need to differentiate between the halacha and the various beautiful customs, minhagim, that are superimposed on a ceremony, meaning to say, some of the things halacha says you must have, and some of the things are very, very important and well-established traditions, minhagim, customs, and one should treat them as very sacred and very important, and particularly mystically, they're connected to spiritual blessings, so God forbid I'm not at all denigrating the importance of them, but they are not part of the halachic requirement itself. Uh, did you want to say? Yes. Um, is this, sorry, I'm just trying to write it down that makes sense, yep. that if someone like has a non-kosher marriage, but it's like, so it's not halachically okay, but it's still halachically bound that they need someone to annul it. Is that correct in what you're, is no, that, well, it's a prohibited no, relationship? No, no not a no. I mean, for example, if a Kohen marries a divorced woman, okay. uh, she cannot get an annulment an annulment would mean that there's no marriage to begin with, okay. but she needs to get a get. She needs to get a, a Jewish divorce. It's so a meaning. It's va- it's a valid marriage in the sense that it needs a halachic termination, such as a get. So, like, it's incest, for example. That's a zero. That that needs nothing at all. Oh, it doesn't need anything. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Marriage to a guy is a zero. Nothing at all. Incestuous marriage, God forbid, is nothing at all. Okay? Uh, because it's not permissible in the first place. Well, well, well a Cohen marrying a divorced woman is also not permissible, but, but, but it's, 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 such a severe, it's such a severe level of prohibition that it is not a marriage. Wait, so what is a marriage with a Cohen? No, if a Cohen marries a divorced woman, that is a forbidden marriage, okay. but it is a valid marriage in the sense that she cannot just walk away, she would have to get a get, meaning there are two different levels of sinful marriages. There are sinful marriages which are not marriages, and there are sinful marriages that are prohibited marriages. And if it's prohibited, you need a get. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. 
Yes, this is very important. Let me, let me repeat this. I did mention this a few times, but I'm, I'm going to repeat it again because it's very important. A Kohen can marry a widow. A Kohen can marry a woman that is a non-virgin from even premarital sexual relationship. Again, a lot of people get confused. A Kohen does not have... He cannot, okay, so again, a Kohen cannot marry a woman that received a get. But if a woman, if a woman, well, of course she's not, she's not a virgin, I understand that, but, but that particular case. But if a woman had intercourse outside of marriage, so she's not a virgin, but she's not a divorcee, a Cohen can marry her, unless she had relations with a goy. Okay, so, again, each, of, each person has to make their own uh, determination what, what their status is vis-a-vis Cohen's, but it's something to be aware of. Okay? So, if a woman had relations with a Jewish man with whom she was not married, and it's non-incestuous, she is allowed to marry a Cohen. If she was married and became widowed, it's from a Jewish man, she is allowed to marry a Cohen. If she received a get, she is not allowed to marry a Kohen. And if she had relations with a Goy, even though no get is required, obviously, she is not allowed to marry a Kohen. Okay, that's the, the basic thing to keep in mind. So uh, virginity is not a requirement to marry a Kohen per se, uh, unless the Kohen is a Kohen Godol, the high priest. And today, there's no, you know, we, don't have the, we don't have the position of Kohen Godol until the uh, Beis HaMikdash is rebuilt, yeah. Can you repeat the two types of sinful marriage? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, s- sinful marriage is a misnomer for type 1 because it's not a marriage at all. But, but, but uh, mm-hmm. some marriages are not marriages at all. The example, two examples I gave you would, would be an incestuous marriage and marriage to a non-Jew. They are not marriages, meaning to say if they went through a marriage whatever it would be, it is totally nothing, and the woman does not need a get, it's not valid, and it counts for zero. On the other hand, other types of marriages, even if they're sinful, prohibited, forbidden, they are marriages in the sense that you need a get, and the example there would be a Kohen who marries a divorced woman, or any man who marries a woman without a proper kasuva. But what's the di- what differentiates the two? Like well, well, if you're asking me how, how we know there's such a distinction, um, basically it, it depends on the severity of the prohibition. I mean, I'm not saying intuitively you would see that there's a difference. I'm not saying that. But, but, but halakhically there is a difference. I mean, the halakha differentiates between... I mean, again, you might... I mean, you, I mean, you could see yourself. Obviously, uh, incest and intermarriage are much, much greater sins than a Kohen marrying a divorced woman. I mean, just in terms of... Uh, the magnitude of the sin, meaning we have a hierarchy. And in the hierarchy, we differentiate between certain relationships that are so uh, far afield that they have no validity whatsoever versus some relationships that are forbidden, but they still have some validity. Yeah. Um, if a queen marries a non-virgin and then gets promoted, promoted to kind of 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, the Gemara discusses that question. Uh, what's going to be? A Kohen marries a widow or a non-virgin, which he's allowed to do, totally permissible, and all of a sudden he gets a promotion. The base of Mikdash gets rebuilt, and he's the greatest Kohen of the generation, so he gets promoted to be Kohen Gadol. Uh, is he allowed to stay married? So there the Gemara actually says that as long as when he married her it was okay, uh, he's uh, allowed to stay married to the woman. But it is, it's discussed. It's an interesting, interesting question. Okay? All righty. Uh, yeah. What if the Kohen didn't know that, sh- that the woman had um, relationships with the non-Jews? Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, so there we have an interesting, okay, here's a very, very interesting issue that goes back to evidence. Theoretically, if he finds out, it's the same thing as finding out that the meat that he's eating is trafe, meaning he, he would have to stop, you'd have to get, you have, would have to dissolve the marriage right away, right? However, practically, there's an interesting rule. How would he find out? The most common way would be she would, she would tell him. Or romantically. Uh, so, well, okay, so, so here's the thing. Who does he have to believe? In other words, yeah, theoretically, if I'm a Kohen, I'm not allowed to stay married to a woman that had intercourse with a guy. But I don't have to believe every Tom, Dick, and Harry who comes forward. Uh, Tom comes forward and says, I was with your wife. You know, he's a guy. Why do I have to believe him? I don't have to believe him. Not only that, but even if my own wife says, yeah, I was with him, I don't have to believe her. Because maybe she's doing it because she wants to be with him now. <laughs> so, so practically, a lot of the ways he would find out, he halakhically does not have to believe. What if it kind but of if there are really two witnesses who say it, then it be, that's going to be rare. That's going to be so. It's going to be rare that you're going to have that type of case. What if a kind of doesn't know, and it's like during the ceremony? Which ceremony? What ceremony? Is um, the marriage ceremony. That is oh, he finds out during the marriage yes. itself. Well, it kind of depends on before he gave her the ring or after he gave her the ring. If it's uh, if he finds out after, then it's the same rule. I mean, who is he finding out from? Meaning to say, he doesn't have to believe her. He doesn't no, have... that a kohen gadol finds out that his wife is a virgin. Oh, he finds out that she's physically not yeah. a virgin. Well, it may be a problem, but even then, uh, the concept is, uh, what, how does he find out she's not a virgin? I mean, I mean even if the, the hymen is ruptured or whatever it is, there could be a million reasons for that. In other words, it doesn't conclusively prove there was sexual intercourse, meaning uh, you still have this problem, what does it mean to find out? And in a lot of cases, you don't really, the man doesn't know, and as so I say... it's yeah. very unlikely that you find evidence. That's what I'm saying. Uh, that, that, that it, there is a theoretical rule that he would have to divorce her if he found out, but practically yeah. nothing that happens will be considered to be finding, right. finding out. Okay. So now I'm going to introduce, uh, I first want to discuss how the, the ceremony of the Torah for marriage, and then we'll discuss how it changed over the years for various reasons. Uh, there are two terms you need to know in marriage. Marriage used to take place in two different stages that were one year apart, one year apart. Stage one is called Erusin. And stage two. Can you spell that? Huh? Can you spell that? Yes, Erusin is Aleph, Yud, Resh, Vav, Samach, Yud, 
final nun, that's stage one, Erusin, and the woman that has, that has had Erusin is called Arusa, Aleph, Resh, Vav, Samache. That's the woman that has had Erusin. And then the second part of the ceremony, I'll go back over this, occurred one year later, one year later. And that is called Nisuin, Nun, Yud, Sin, Vav, Aleph, Yud, Final Nun. And the woman that has undergone Nisuin is called Nisua, Nun, Sin, Vav, Aleph, He. Meaning to say, a woman is an Arusa for up to a year, and then she becomes. Well, okay, so here, okay, so here I need to I need to immediately correct a misconception. In modern Hebrew only, erusin is a word that's still used, and it means engagement. Right today, a person might invite you. Uh, you know, when a girl becomes a kala. Right? So your friend will invite you, they call it l'chayim or vork, but they'll sometimes say, I'll invite you to my erusin. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase used. Okay, in modern Hebrew, it's engagement. Now engagement, as you know, is not marriage. If you break up an engagement, you don't need to get. Okay, so the first thing you need to know is when the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Gemara use the term erusin, they do not mean engagement. It is actually stage one of real marriage. If an erusin, not today, if, if an erusin that I'm going to describe gets broken up, it needs a get. It is a full-fledged marriage, although it's not complete yet. We'll, we'll see. Okay, so this is very, very confusing because modern Hebrew usage is not using the term the way halachic literature uses the term. And by halachic literature, I mean everything. I mean Chomesh, I mean Mishnah, I mean Gemara, I mean Rambam, I mean Shulchan Aruch. In any of those sources, when you see the word Erusin, or you see the word Arusa, it has, does not have the meaning that it has in modern Hebrew. This is why modern Hebrew can sometimes be a little confusing. So, in modern Hebrew, which I'm not really going to use anymore, I mean, I can use this word at least, Arison is just engagement. But that's not what we're talking about. So what do I mean? What does the Torah mean? What does the Rambam mean? What does the Mishnah mean? What does the Gemara mean by Arison? Arison is what we would call the ring ceremony, where the Chatan the chasan gives to the kala something of value. Now, the minog is a ring, but the ring is only a minog, meaning the fact that it's a ring, everybody gives a ring, that's a minog. And we'll talk about why. But the halacha is he has to give her anything of value. And it could be a very minimal value, a prutav, just basically, basically a penny. He could give her a pen, right? If I'm cheap, I could uh, give my kala a pen. I've never seen it, but 
I give my kala a pen or even a paper clip under the chuppah <laughs> and say, and I say words. What are the famous words? Right? I'm sure uh, girls who aren't married memorize these words. They're dreaming of the day. But hooray. <laughs> forgive me. Okay. Hooray at, hooray at mikudeshetli. Behold, you are betrothed to me. So we say bitabat with this ring, but if it's not a ring, you say with this paper clip. Now I'll be a very shoulder. Kedas Moshe, in accordance with the laws of Moshe, means the laws that Hashem gave to Moshe, the Israel that were given to the whole Torah. And what does he have to do? It has to belong to him. Right? That means the ring has to be fully paid for. He can't owe money on it. Right? It has to belong to him. He gives it to her. He makes a declaration. Right? And in front of two kosher witnesses, two kosher witnesses who are Shomer Shabbos, she accepts it. Now, she doesn't have to accept it by saying yes. She doesn't have to say yes, but she accepts it by, you know, extending her hand. Which means you can't, a man cannot marry a woman against her will. I can't go, to, uh, go over to a woman and say, you know, stick the ring on her finger. Kiddushin requires mutual agreement. The man and the woman must agree to be married, but the woman doesn't, ha- doesn't have to say anything, but she agrees when she extends her finger, or if it's a paper clip, when she puts out her hand. In other words, the ring is the minog of how we do it, but it doesn't have to be a ring. It could be a paper clip. It could be a coin. I can give her a shekel and marry her with a shekel. Yeah, it does have to be a specific amount. Yeah, the amount is very minimal. The amount is essentially the value of a penny. So you can give her, not you, I'm, I'm talking from the man's perspective, uh, you can give her like uh, a piece of chewing gum. That's going to be enough. Used? <laughs> well, maybe, not, maybe not used. I'm not sure if that'll be worth That'd even a penny. Down. But you can, give her, you, you can give her a piece of popcorn. Uh, maybe a piece of popcorn. What happens if you eat it and then it's gone? Well, it depends. Who's the you, the woman or the man? So the man gives me a piece of gum. Yeah. And then, oh no, popcorn. And then I eat it, and it's gone. Okay, you're married. You're married. What? I mean, you're married. He yeah, gave you've you. Got no proof of the marriage. Well, well, there are two. Remember, there are two witnesses. We saw him give you the popcorn. You know. What? Uh, in other words, popcorn. You know, good. A ring, a ring can last, but theoretically, if a woman got something of value, even if it got lost a second later. She's still married. The marriage doesn't disappear because the, the ring got lost. Now, let me point out, that is what we mean by Erison. Erison is not, again, modern Hebrew meant engagement. That's not what this means. This actually means the marriage of giving the ring or the value in front of two witnesses. Now, yeah? If, let's say, he did get a paper clip that he, let's say, purchased for Shemakruta, right? For yep. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a good, that's a good, that's a good situ- That's a good question. Meaning to say, it has to be worth a pruta at the time he gives it to her. Meaning, if it is so uh, cheap or so small that even if he spent ten dollars for it, but now it's worth uh, nothing, then it's not a marriage. Now again, a pruta is only a penny, so it's not too hard 
right? You may notice, I don't know if you ever paid attention, maybe you're not close enough to a chuppah, but maybe if you have a sibling got married or whatever it is, you may notice that when we do the ring ceremony today, and there are two witnesses, so the rabbi that's supervising the marriage, almost like a joke, everyone always laughs a little bit, he takes the ring, the chassan gives him the ring for inspection, and the rabbi will ask the witnesses, is this worth a penny? Do you think this is worth it? Because the witnesses have to ascertain that it's worth a penny. And of course, the witnesses always laugh and say, yes, it's worth it. It's, it's worth a penny and the like. Uh, but if it would be a paper clip, they'd have to spend some time, you know, kind of saying, well, we have to check, uh, check the stationery stores, how much, you know. Because, because if you can get, you understand, if you can get 100 paper clips for five shekel, then one paper clip is not worth a penny, right? So uh, things can be, can be cheap that way. Okay? Now, um, why, why we use a ring? Again, using a ring is a minute. As I say, I've never seen someone not use a ring. But there are a number of things that, let me just add, the ring ceremony has certain minhagim. Number one, we use a ring instead of a pen or a pencil or even money. You can give a woman a, a check. <laughs> Here's a check for $10, you know, uh, whatever it would be. But, you know, we don't do that. You can give and her a penny. Can you, you can give her a penny. Can you see the plastic again? Yes, uh, it's not a pasuk; it's, it's a phrase. Hare, hare means behold, at you, feminine you, mikudeshet are sanctified, lee to me, bitabas zu with this ring, and then you would insert. If you're not using a ring, you would insert whatever it is, the paper clip, kidas, in accordance with the laws or the religion of Moshe, which means the religion that God gave to Moshe, the Torah. The Yisrael were given to Moshe and B'nai Yisrael. So just the phrase Harei Atmukudeshet. No, no. So the truth of the matter is, Bidiyevet. If all the person said was Harei Atmukudeshet, that would be enough also. And in fact, if he says it in English, it's enough. I mean, I mean, again, we try to have it said in Hebrew, but in theory, in theory, if a person simply says, "Behold, you are not even behold, you are betrothed to me." Okay, no, not enough, not enough. Let me explain why. Will you marry me is a question. <laughs> what if someone says... You can't you say, will you marry me. What if someone says, says, you will marry me, or you are marrying me. Yeah, that, would be, that I think would be good. Well, just marry me. What else? Well, well, ma- marry me, marry me, I think is also a question. Marry me, you know. Uh, and that's why... Right, right, you know, he has to make a statement that she agrees to. Now, as he said, uh, the exact form is not ma'akev, meaning to say, yeah, we have a way that we always do it, but other forms would be good as well, as long as it's a statement and not a question. Will you marry me is not, not good enough. Now, that's what you might say for an engagement, but an engagement is not a marriage. Uh, you ask the, the woman, you know, will you marry me? I, I don't think Jews really get on their knees uh, for that. <laughs> but uh, will you marry me? Okay, that's how you get engaged. But the marriage ceremony requires an affirmative statement, I am marrying you. Now, the woman has to agree. If she says no, or if she doesn't put out her hand, there's no marriage. Uh, but as they say, she acquiesces normally by extending her hand. Yeah. Is there a specific finger with the ring? Okay, so again, so let's differentiate halacha and minhag. According to halacha, you don't even need a ring. According to halacha, the finger doesn't make a difference. You can put it in her hand, you can put it in her pocket, uh, you can put the popcorn in her mouth. Uh, 
you can. Uh, there is no, halachically none of this matters, but the custom is we use a ring, and the custom is that it's the uh, the index uh, the index finger. Even if now she can switch the ring later, she can switch the ring later. There, it's the right index finger, it's the custom, but she doesn't have to keep the ring on that finger. A lot of sometimes uh, women wear the ring on a different finger. That's all right, but the minog is the index finger. Now these are minhagim. Again, it's important to understand that if you had the wrong finger or whatever it would be, you know that does not affect the marriage at all. It's not only valid; it's even permissible. You could stay married. You don't have to redo it in any way. But these are these are customs. Another custom, again a custom, not a din, is that uh, the ring not have any engraving on it. You'll notice a, an engagement ring can be whatever you want it to be. It can be this and that. It can have pearls and whatever it is. But a wedding ring, the ring under the chuppah, which is erison. Again, I'll go back to uh, the the custom is there are no engravings and there are no jewels in it. And uh, the reason is an interesting reason, because when there are engravings or jewels, the, even if it's a fake jewel or whatever it is, the woman might think it's worth more than it really is. So even though it's true that all you need is a pruta, so of course the ring is worth a penny, but if she thinks it's worth $1,000 and it's only worth $800, that's called a deceptive marriage. And the, 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 the fear would be that the jewel or the engraving might throw her off and therefore the minog is plain, unadorned ring. Uh, people say sometimes, what about the engraving that says, you know, 24 carat, just, it's just the letters, 24 carat, that, that's not decorative engraving, so that, that, that's gonna be, going to be okay. Now, Kabbalistically, there's a question, do you go with yellow gold or white gold? Uh, again, uh, these are Kabbalistic ideas that yellow gold represents gavura, and white gold represents uh, chesed. There are different issues it has about to be gold. the minog is that it is gold. The minog is again, again. When I say has, rose gold. What's rose gold? It's, it's, it's gold. like a pinkish. It's, it's an alloy. Okay, so so these are these are issues again. In, in as a matter of halacha, again, this is what I want you to understand. As a matter of halacha, none of this makes a difference at all. Kabbalistically, depending on on That's your rebbe's and your teachers, there are various spiritual significances. To these various, uh, to these various things, okay. So, definition: a rusin is equals ring ceremony. That's all. Not sheva brachas. Not anything. Else. Ring ceremony. The giving of the ring, or or the paperclip, right? Whatever it is, and the making of the statement, and her acceptance of the statement in front of kosher witnesses and the rabbi is only there to supervise. Remember the, the point here. Unlike uh, Christianity where the priest or whoever is marrying you or unlike even a civil marriage where a judge is marrying you the rabbi is not marrying you at all. The rabbi is just there to supervise, and that is why, theoretically, even if there's no rabbi there at all, you can have a, a marriage. I wouldn't tell you to do that because things can go wrong. Um, that's why every year we sometimes have potential questions 
about bar mitzvah boys in playgrounds. It's, it's kind of, you know, again, uh, in which uh, they go over to a girl as a joke in front of two of their friends and say, give her a paper clip. Hurry up, be that's You know, it's kind of a joke. Everybody's laughing. And then the question is whether the girl has to cover her hair, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, and needs to get, right? So uh, there's no rabbi there, right? There was no kasuva. There was no kasuva, right? So they didn't do what they needed to do. But they did do the erusin ceremony. And as a result, she's an arusa. Arusa, halakhically, is not engagement. Arusa is real, real marriage, albeit stage one. I'll explain why it's stage one in a moment. This is called erusin. She is called Arusa. Yeah. Um, what if some, like, they were intoxicated? Yeah, it does make a difference, meaning to say, uh, but, but it depends, I'll tell you the truth, because it really depends on the degree of intoxication. Meaning if they're simply high, you know, uh, they're still bound by what they do. But if they're really so uh, inebriated that they're on the verge of passing out, then those things don't, uh, then those things don't count. So there, there is a level of intoxication. Also, let me point out that in a lot of the playground cases, when it's absolutely clear they were just fooling around as a joke, then halacha does not consider it a valid marriage. So in a lot of these cases, the poor 12-year-old girl does not have to uh, cover her hair or uh, you know, get a get from the person you know, and, and the like. But you know, cases come up. Because kids, some reason, I, mean, I understand why, when kids first learn about this, the, the idea of how you marry a woman, uh, you know, it's like kind of a joke. They they like they they, they want to try it out as a as a bit of a game, and these things can have you know consequences. So also, be, does the yeah. ring have to be given after the words are spoken? Yes, this is very important. That's the sequencing here is important. There must be a declaration, and then a giving, and the declaration must be made halachic. This is not just minon halachically. It must be made by the man. That's why one of the reasons the man cannot say under the chuppah will you marry me? And she says yes. And that is why even a double ring ceremony is halakhically very problematic. You know, sometimes you have a situation where, you know, uh, the man wants to give a ring to the uh, wife and the wife wants to give the ring to the, a ring to the man. Okay, double ring, right? It's, you know, it makes sense uh, intuitively. But you don't do that uh, under the chuppah, meaning to say the, the marriage, the erusin, must be the man giving to the woman and if they want a double ring then it should be after the heirson after the heirson, I'll discuss when can the woman say then, something else? Huh? can the woman say a random no, she should not, she should not I mean, she, she should not say anything at the time mm-hmm. at the time what if the man says, alright, I don't think there should be and the woman doesn't agree to it? it? well, uh, someone's going to lose their deposit on the hall, I mean uh, <laughs> It's her right. She she could she could so she could say she, no. So just because he said that and gave her a ring doesn't not mean Well, well, well. Depends, well no, no, no. It depends when she is. If she accepts the ring and then then a second later says, "Hmm, I'm not sure anymore." Uh, she's stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's married. But but she has to she has to declare her uh, unwillingness before the ring is put on her finger. Okay. If she's forced. Uh, Absolutely invalid. Uh, a, a woman, a woman that is forced is not married. You cannot force a woman like, if, like, into marriage. Under manipulation, come. So that that's going to be tricky. When I, when I say force, you know, I, I mean clear clear cases of force, such as he puts a gun to her head and says, "Marry me, or I'm shooting you." 
uh, in such a case, even if she accepts the ring, uh, this is under duress, and she could say, you know, this is nothing at all. Now, when you're talking about psychological manipulation, that's uh, a much more that's a much more tricky situation, because a lot of times, you know, I mean, and, and men as well. You know, I mean, you would say forced. You know, there are men that are also forced into marrying a woman. Let's say, got her pregnant or whatever, whatever it would be. Uh, so that's tricky. I think in most cases of what you call psychological manipulation, we would treat it as a marriage and we would require a get. But when there's physical coercion or duress or threats, that's a very different uh, story. Yeah. So when you, you mentioned before about someone giving a ring for the engagement. Yeah, that doesn't make, count, right. No, so you said like the engagement ring having things on it and then the wedding yeah. ring having a band. Yeah. Is, so the reason that Chabad don't give a ring at an engagement is because it's part of the marriage ceremony? Yes, the, the, the problem, that's just, that's just Chabad. I'm, 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 I was referring to the custom that most people do, that there is an engagement ring. But that you are correct, in some circles, they do not give an engagement ring because there is a fear that the ring might make the engagement into a real marriage because it is a ring and that witnesses are aware of. So in order to avoid the idea that the engagement morphs into an erison, meaning modern Israeli erison turns into a halachic erison, so they prefer not to do anything that would make it into a possible marriage. Now most people are not worried about that because they say, I'm not giving it for marriage and she's not accepting it for marriage, she's accepting it as an engagement to be married but not as marriage itself. So that's why we are lenient with it. But, but as I say, Chabad, other people uh, have a custom not to give uh, any type of ring uh, for an engagement. Okay, and then a follow-up on that, like if a guy gives a woman any type of jewelry? Yeah, it is a problem. Now, I don't know what Chabad's may not get on this, but there are people who will not give any gift at all to their kala during an engagement for fear it will be construed as uh, giving them something of value. Well, the, the reason is, the reason is because uh, if, the, if the engagement turns into a marriage, erison, so if, God forbid, it does get broken off, they would need a get. So, so we, we, we don't want to create that complication until they actually get married. But does it like really create complications? Is there any yeah, it's it's a chumrah. I mean, it's 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 an extra stringency, meaning uh, just in case we don't want to create a situation where there might be a marriage. But as they say, uh, the custom again. I mean, you you have to follow whatever custom of your uh, rebbe's uh, are. Uh, but the custom of most of the religious Jewish world is that they are not concerned about this particular problem, and they will. You know, men will send gifts to their kala, the kala, and the, and the boy, the kala can send gifts to the chassan. Uh, the problem I suggested is only under the chuppah itself. You don't do a double ring ceremony, but you know, afterwards or before, the bride can. In fact, the minog. This is a minog. This is not a din at all. But there is a minog that a kala does give certain things to the chassan. Uh, a watch. Again, it's a custom. Uh, uh, in many cases, she buys the talis that the chassan will wear uh, because of. The minog of Ashkenazim generally is that a single man does not wear a, a talus only after he's married. Ashkenazim? Uh, among, among non-German Ashkenazim. You know, Sephardim do. Sephardim do wear a talus. And German do wear? Yes, yeah, Sephardim wear and German wear. Uh, German Jews wear. But non-German Ashkenazim, like Polish, Russian, Litvisha, 
and Hasidim, all Hasidim, not just Chabad, they do not wear talis uh, as a single person, only as a married person. And many have the custom that the, ka- the kala will buy or give the chassan his talis. And uh, many have the custom that the kala, actually it's really the kala's father, uh, buys the chassan a shas. You know, a shas is a set of Babylonian Talmud there, those 20 volumes. It's uh, a, little bit, a little bit of an investment uh, there. Yeah. Can minors um, be married? Okay, uh, so it depends what you mean. A man or a boy who is younger than 13 cannot be halachically married. Theoretically, however, if the man is bar mitzvah, uh, the father has the authority to marry off his daughter uh, really from birth, theoretically. theoretically. And like real marriage? Uh, and this would be a real marriage. It would just be uh, uh, Well, uh, so far, we really the whole thing, but really we're talking about Erson so far. Because uh, then they used to do, they did that like the times of the Tsar. Yes, they, they sometimes did it because that would be a way of protecting a, a woman, etc. Uh, so it has been done, but as I say, uh, it's very, very, I mean, it's not done today, and it's very, very uh, discouraged. Uh, but it's theoretically a, a, a girl below bat mitzvah can be married off. She herself cannot get married, meaning right. if the chassan gave her something and she accepted, that would not count. But the father would have the power to marry her off that way, yeah. But isn't that not giving permission to decide? What about the order? Well, well, it is. It is. It's difficult. It's difficult to understand. Apparently, the father's authority over a pre-bat mitzvah girl, uh, it was so strong that she didn't even have to consent. It was the father's consent that was sufficient. Now, the Talmud says it's forbidden for the father to do that. This is another example of forbidden but valid. The father is not supposed to do that. Uh, in fact, he's not supposed to do that even if she says she's willing because she doesn't really know she's too young and how much more so if she says she doesn't want. But after the fact, it is a valid, uh, it is a valid marriage. She would need a get under those circumstances. And after the age of 12? So after the age of 12, she's an adult. So once she's an adult, well, okay, okay here I have to be a little, little technical. Technically, the father has another six months until she's 12 and a half. The, the father's power extends a half a year after her bas mitzvah. But once she's 12 and a half, she is on her own. He has no authority over her. Well, what's the reason for why the father doesn't have any power over his son when he's younger? Um, I don't know. In other words, I, I can't really tell you. It, it's derived, I mean, I can tell you the derivation of these things. The derivation is at the end of the book of, of Bamidbar. It uh, talks about the father having the authority to annul the vows of his uh, daughter, etc., and uh, it implies as well that he has the power to marry her off. And since the Torah gives this power to the father over the daughter and not over the son, so Chazal make this dichotomy. Uh, what exactly is the reasoning is not entirely clear. I, I, I don't have a compelling reason for it, but I do want to emphasize that the Talmud itself says it is absolutely forbidden for a father to do this. However, you pointed out correctly that when there were emergency situations, the need to protect girls from exploitation, or boys from, or boys from the army, they, they did bend the rule and allow it, but only in extenuating emergency situations. Uh, normally it is a prohibited thing, but if it's done after the fact, it will be a, it will be a valid 
a valid marriage. Um, and you also mentioned that a woman should give her birth a ring also under the chuppah. Under the chuppah, because, well, because once again, because it confuses the ceremony. The ceremony has to be he is giving her and not that they're both giving each other. How do I know that? Again, we know this from the language of the Torah. Ki yikach ish isha, when a man takes a woman to a wife, and not that the woman takes the man. It has to work in that paradigm. And the Gemara gives a beautiful explanation for it. It says that what is a woman? A woman was taken from the man, right? The rib or the side of the man. It's as if to say the woman is a lost part of the man, something the man lost. So when you lose a lost object, the Gemara says it is the owner that looks for the object and not the object that looks for the owner. Now, this doesn't mean to say woman is an object. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have used that word. But it means that the woman is part of the man that the man is lacking. It's a lack in him. She is fine the way she is. She's perfect. She's fine. He's incomplete. He's missing part of his essential self. He has to go look for what he's missing. I mean, that's what the Gemara says. Again, I, I, I do understand that um, some of these reasons may not uh, be compelling to you, and I, I can't give you all of the reasons for the Torah. I, I, I hope that I know that's a little shocking. How can I not know all the reasons? But the truth of the matter is, uh, there's much in God's Torah that we don't fully understand, but at least I want you to understand the halachic structure of what is going on here. Yeah. So when when we're talking about um, the fear that certain communities have of giving a ring in advance, yeah. if like a, a guy and a girl are out alone in like a forest, let's say, and yeah. he gives her a ring, and he says, you know, will you marry me? She says, yes, he gives her the ring, and then she makes a post on Instagram or on social <laughs> media, right? And it's a picture of her with the ring with the guy, and she says, I said yes, right? <laughs> so then can that be later misconstrued like nobody, definitely nobody witnessed it. Yeah. Did you later say, but there are like rabbis who saw her Instagram. Right, right. So, so that, that, that's a real, that is a really, really good and difficult question. Meaning to say, on one hand, it's absolutely true. There is no marriage without witnesses. That is absolutely the case. But the question is, do they have to be witnesses at the time of the action, or can they be witnesses to what they see later on Instagram or Facebook? or whatever it is. There may be a question. Again, there may be maybe some question, meaning theoretically there may be a problem with the Instagram post. You would later. also need to prove that he didn't just say, will you marry? You would have to, you would have to prove that he said, uh, That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Will you marry you is not enough. That, that's correct. It has to be, I am marrying you. Yeah, that's the earlier, that's the earlier point. That's the earlier point that, that, that was made. Okay. Now, we do the ring ceremony even today. This is what you do under the chuppah, right? But here is the thing. In the time of the Torah, and even in the time of the Mishnah and Gomorrah, that's all they did. In other words, if you would have been, in stage one, that's all they They didn't do the rest till a year later. And I'll talk about what the rest is. All they did was the ring ceremony. And she's in Arusa. And after that, she would go back she was not living with her husband. She would go back to wherever she was living, whether it was her father, typically, or if she was on her own, right? In other words, this is a very strange situation. She's a married woman, but the husband does not yet cohabit with her. 
The husband and her do not live under the same roof. The husband does not yet support her. She is supported either by your parents or by herself, whatever it is. So it's, it resem- see, it's funny, it resembles what we would think of as an engagement because it looks like an engagement, but it actually is a marriage that has not yet been consummated. And this was called erison. And that could last as much as a year, could be shorter. And what happened after a year? What's the minimum amount of time? The minimum could be, I mean, actually, we'll, we'll see. Like today we have no time, no time gap at all. There is no requirement of minimum time. In other words, you could do it in right away if you wanted to. And we'll see that we do that today. But uh, in the time of the Torah, it was common to give her a year. Now, what's the purpose of such an amount of time? Part of it is because girls often got betrothed at a very young age. So give them a year to get ready. Part of it was economic. Women had to bring in big dowries in those days. So it was time to accumulate a dowry. But during that year, she's married but the husband is not allowed to be, she cannot be with anyone else, that's obvious, that's obvious, she's married, but she can't even be with her husband. Right, so it's like, it's like an engagement, but you have to understand, it's not an engagement, it is halachically a marriage. She can't be with her husband? She cannot be with her what husband. until it pre-marital? Huh? It wouldn't be premarital. It's another avera of, of an arus being with an arusa, meaning uh, there's a statement that until we do nisuin, and I'll discuss part two of the ceremony, mm-hmm. It is forbidden to be together. If she's with someone else, is the child in mom's name? Yes. It is mamash adultery if she's with another man. Adultery mamash. Now, what then would happen a year, up to a year later, is part two of the ceremony, and that is called nisuin. Yeah? Does Arison expire? No. So when you say up to a year later, what is the... Okay, what I mean to say is that if he refuses, if the man refuses to make Nisuin within a year, he will be forced to give her a get. He's not allowed to, meaning theoretically, she could be in Arusa her whole life, but a Beit Din will not allow that to happen. The Beit Din will tell the man, you either make Nisuin and consummate this marriage, or we will force you to give a get and dissolve it. But Arison does not expire, per se. Okay, so so agreement, so mutual agreements can extend or contract the time. But if she wants to have consummated marriage and he's delaying it beyond the year, Mm -hmm. uh, Beit Din will say either do Nisuin or give her a gift, and we will force her to do that. If he gets lost, like if he um, goes to the army and no one knows what happens to him, does she become an Aguna? Well, well, that's a general. I mean, that could be not only Arison, that could be even if they're married 25 years. Definitely if they're married, but Arison. Yeah, same thing, same, same thing, thing, same thing, same thing. I mean, missing, I mean, as you know, a missing in action soldier is halachically a very, very, very difficult halachic problem. It has nothing to do with Arison. That could apply at any, any point in a marriage. And that's because, just as a, an aside, halacha does not have a presumption. You know, secular law has a, I don't know what the law in Israel is, but in America, uh, unexplained absence for seven years is a presumption of death. I mean, you, you, have you heard this? Uh, Who has this? Oh. Uh-huh. Who has this? United States, most in the United States. U- U.S. Uh, law. U.S. law, yeah. Uh, 
every state is a little different, but if somebody disappears and there is no word for, for them, for, uh, from them for seven years, they can be declared dead and that means the wife will be allowed to remarry, the wife can get social security benefits, whatever it is, so even if he shows up later, he's already dead. <laughs> okay, actually, if you've ever read Catch-22, there's a funny scene about that, but okay. Uh, now, uh, halacha does not have that presumption. No matter how many years somebody is gone, maybe they're alive. Now that means when a, a soldier is missing in action and we don't know if he's dead or alive, his wife will tragically be unable to remarry because maybe he's alive. This was a problem after the Holocaust. This was a problem after 9-11, a different uh, thing. You know, we didn't have a body, etc. So that would be a problem with Erison as well, but it would be a problem. Now, that is why you may, you may have learned that in King David's army, David HaMelech's army, every soldier that went to war actually gave his wife mm-hmm. a get. Now, the intention was, if he came back, they would marry again. That was the intention. The intention was not that she should marry somebody else, but just in case he's missing in action, she would have the opportunity to remarry. There was actually a proposal in 1948, the year that Israel was established, that perhaps we should encourage at least religious soldiers to give get to their wives so they would not be, the women would not be Agunot. Agunot is a stranded woman, uh, just like David Amalek's army. But the Rabbanut decided not to do it because it would have a detrimental impact on combat morale. If you understand, part of what keeps a soldier going with enthusiasm is the feeling that uh, their wife and family are waiting for them. Uh, somehow psychologically if uh, the person feels oh my wife can do it, marry whoever she wants uh, that may take away some of the enthusiasm so they decided not to institutionalize it but I will tell you there are individual private soldiers who do give getting to their wives when they go on combat missions uh, they actually do divorce their wife of course if you're a Cohen that doesn't work unfortunately because if you give your wife a get you cannot marry her again a Cohen cannot do this at all uh, but there are individual non-Kohanim who do it, and every time they come back from battle, they remarry their wives. They do a new kiddushin, new erison. Yeah. Um, can a Kohen or somebody who like is in that, like, can you give a conditional get, like, a, if in six months from this date no one has heard from me? Yes, exactly, 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 exactly right. Uh, you don't have to give an absolute get. You're divorced from today. You can say, uh, this get will be valid on the condition that I am not heard from for six months, for 12 months, for 60 months. You can make it five years too. Uh, you can put whatever time you want, and that means if you show up, not when I say you, forgive me, I'm referring to the man. If the, soul, if the man shows up, uh, within the before the time has expired, then she's still married. They're married. The get will be activated only if he's gone for that period of, of time. Now you understand that unfortunately in the state of Israel, this is a real, real problem. I mean, there, 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 were, there were and there still are soldiers who have been captured, 
by uh, Arabs, by, by terrorists, by Syrians. Rana Arad was a famous case. Uh, Gilad Shalit was another famous case who got released, and, but, but there were people who were missing in action for many, 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 many years. And uh, after around 15 years, the Rabbanut did declare that they were dead, although it's not clear even if that was justified, but, but certainly there were many, many years where the wife was an aguna and she was not, would not be allowed to remarry. And the reason is because halacha does not have this automatic presumption of death. You've got to have some evidence of death. You can't just say, oh, I haven't heard from him. Uh, yeah? Um, if, like, a um, terrorist agency says, we killed him, they're not kosher witnesses. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Uh, theoretically, to establish death of a man, the rabbis are very, very lenient. So we do accept testimony from normally improper sources. We, we accept uh, Gentile testimony uh, and the like. We even accept testimony of minors, uh, people who are not kosher witnesses normally. No. Uh, the only question is, uh, we may not accept the terrorist claims because of the boasting, meaning to say, they might be boasting, meaning they might be showing off that they killed somebody, which they didn't mean, meaning there is a problem of credibility when a terrorist boasts that they killed somebody because maybe they're doing it just to show off. So there may be a little bit of a problem. But if, on the other hand, a United Nations, you know, investigative force came in and they filed a report that so-and-so is dead, we would very likely accept that as a Red Cross or something. We would accept that as, as evidence. What happens if um, they do get a report which is inaccurate? And the woman remarries, and then that. Uh, yeah, those okay. are those are nightmare scenarios. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, that means the woman has to leave the second husband. Would it could be Nazarene? They would be, yeah, and she cannot go back to the first husband. So that, that that's a. I mean, the Gemara talks about that. That that's a nightmare scenario, but it, it can happen. It can be a very very difficult, difficult situation. Okay, so Erison was ring ceremony. A year later, up to a year later is part two. Part two is Nisuin. Let me go through the steps of Nisuin. Number one, the writing of a ketubah. It's interesting. The writing of a ketubah did not belong to the Ersin part of the ceremony. The writing of a ketubah belongs to the Nisuin part of the ceremony. What is a ketubah, or kesubah, right, the same thing? two pronunciations for it. A ketubah is a written document that the husband pro- makes certain promises to his wife. The wife makes no promises to the husband in the ketubah. The ketubah is 100% promises the husband makes to his wife. He promises, number one, to support her economically. Of course, we'll how does that work with modern color life? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But he promises to support her. That's food, shelter, clothing, marital intimacy. Right? These are obligations he's assuming. He also promises to pay her a sum of money. We'll talk about the sum of money in the event of his death or he divorces her. So it, does, so it both has marriage obligations and some compensation in the event of his death or divorce. 
and it also promises to return to her the dowry that she brought into the marriage. So if she brought in clothing, she brought in furniture, she brought in a car, she brought in different types of assets. Actually, he doesn't promise to return the actual stuff. It's actually, it's even better. He promises to return the value of what she brought in. So if she brought in, let's say, a uh, 2018 car, and they've been married for five years, now the car is worth much less, he has to pay the value of the stuff that she brought in. So giving her back the car five years later actually doesn't cut it? Well, he, he would have to give back the car, but give her the, the original value as well, meaning you'd have to augment it. He'd have to compensate her for depreciation. So again, let me summarize. Now, I'm, not, I'm giving it in a very general way. I'll give it be more specific later. Ketubah is number one, obligations of the marriage. Food, clothing, marital intimacy, support. That's number one. Number two, a promise to pay money. We'll talk about how much. In the event of death or divorce. His death or divorce. Number three, a promise to refund to her the value of the assets that she brought into the marriage valued as of the day of the marriage. Cars, furniture, income. Huh? What's the third thing? Uh, That's the, the promise to pay her the value of all of the assets that she brought into the marriage valued as of the day that she brought it in. Meaning, if they depreciate, he has to compensate her for it. The ketubah, in turn, is also signed by witnesses. They, they, they can be the same witnesses of the ring ceremony, or they can be different witnesses. Now, remember, I'm describing a historical time when the Ersin and the Nisun were a year apart, so it could very well be that in those days the witnesses were different. So, I'm now going through Nisuin. So, Nisuin, number one, execution and signing of ketubah. Number one. Number two, recitation of seven brachos. Seven special blessings. And, you know, you know the, the, the Hosheva brachos, which bless the chasan and the kala, etc. And number three, the chasan now brings his kala into his home in the presence of witnesses. Now, this is not yet physical cohabitation. That's not a requirement for Nisuin. But the bringing of the kala into the home is, and once these three things are done, what are the three things? Ketubah, Sheva Brachos, bringing her into his home. What does that mean? Well, quite literally, it would mean, you know, bringing her into the threat, just like, you know, he doesn't have to carry, lift her over the threshold, but he brings her into his home. He has a house, an apartment. He br- and I'll talk about how, how this translates today. He brings her into his home, and there will be a wedding procession, t- typically, and the bringing her into the home is she now changes from Arusa to Nesua, and now they are permitted to live together as husband and wife. And this, in the time of the Torah and in the time of the Mishnah, 
and the time of the Gemara was one year up to up to up to one year after after Erson. Now, this resembles very strongly what we do, but but obviously it, it not quite. So I, I just want to explain how what we do mirrors that and how it changed and why it changed. Yeah. If the ketubah is only the groom making declaring these obligations, yep. why does the bride have to sign it? Uh, she does not. Now, uh, let me point out that as a matter of halacha, we have to differentiate like modern custom from halacha. According to halacha, even the groom doesn't have to sign the ketubah. The only people who have to sign are two witnesses that the groom agreed to the terms. You do not need the signature of the groom on the ketubah. You certainly do not need the signature of the bride on the ketubah. Only the two witnesses. Only the two witnesses. That's all you need. On my own ketubah, uh, we only have two witnesses. Uh, that was quite a long time ago. Now, it happens to be that it is customary today in many, many circles, including Rabbanut, any marriage in Israel under the Rabbanut, that in addition to the witnesses, they want the bride and the groom to sign so they both acknowledge that they've agreed uh, to the terms of the ksuva. But that's, uh, we'll call that a bureaucratic thing. That's not a halachic thing. Halacha, a ketubah is valid if two, again, the witnesses have to be Shomer Shabbos, etc., all of those rules, okay? Okay, so this is Nisuin. Erison, Nisuin, separated by a year. Now, you'll notice a few things. You'll notice, number one, although I've been referring to a chuppah, but a chuppah per se is not an indispensable element of either Erison or Nisuin. You could marry a woman in here, you could marry a woman in, uh, outside. In other words, the idea of the structure of a chuppah, we're going to see, gets us into the realm of custom and longstanding tradition. It is not part Right, I'm trying. I'm trying to get you to understand what are the indispensable parts of the ceremony, and the indispensable parts of the ceremony are erison, which is giving of something of value to the bride that she accepts with a declaration made in front of witnesses, and then nesuin is kasuba, sheva brachos, and bringing the woman into his home, which meant, in a very physical sense his home. He brings her into his house. Right? It's, I mean, the geisha analog would be carrying her over the threshold, but he doesn't have to carry her over the threshold. They can walk together into the house. And that is the transition from Erison to Nesuin, and only after the three Nesuin steps are made are they now permitted to live as husband and wife and uh, including cohabitation. So, what this means is cohabitation per se is consummation is not necessary for Nisuin. It's the other way around. It's Nisuin that now permits consummation, but the consummation itself is not part of the marriage process. What is, yeah. What is it that step in modern day culture? Huh? We don't really... No, no I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to explain... Uh, how the modern ceremony is the same, but it's also different. Yeah. Um, do the witnesses need to be the same throughout the whole No, no. For example, one example is, okay, so based on what I described, 
How many witnesses would you need? You needed two witnesses for the Erosin. You needed two witnesses for the Kasuva. And you needed two witnesses for the final step of Nesuin that's bringing her into the home. And the now, and, well, you don't need witnesses for the blessing. The blessings don't need witnesses. So according to that, you needed three groups of witnesses. They could be three different, you know, six people, or they could be the same. Uh, if you don't, for example, at your own wedding, if you don't have a lot of religious people, you may use the same two people for everything. If you have a lot of religious uh, men that are able to be witnesses, you may want to divide the honors, right? So there's no halacha one way or the other. Okay, now, let me explain what has happened today because I, I've described to you what a marriage would look like 2,000 years ago. By the way, when would they make the party? Given the fact that there were two ceremonies that were a year apart, when do you have the orchestra? When do you uh, have the fancy meal? So the truth of the matter is, the fancy meal was Nesuin, not Ersin. In other words, Ersin, they tended not to make a big celebration. So the party, the meal, the rejoicing, the dancing, was primarily at the time of Nisuin. It was not at the time of Ersin. That is why you actually find in Halacha that during the three weeks, you know, that's the period of the summer when we mourn, so you're not supposed to make weddings. Theoretically, you could make Ersin. And that, does, that does not mean engagement only. It actually means... Does a woman cover the hair after Oh, okay. Oh, covering it. Good, good point. When does a married woman cover her hair? The answer is only after Nisuin. Only after Nisuin. During Ersin, her hair could be uncovered. But we'll see why today things are going to be a little different. Isn't okay. that, that, isn't yeah. consummation what makes Covering uh, that's, that's another makhluk, mean, meaning some say hair covering nisuin and some say hair covering consummation. That, that's a makhluk, and it's better to be machmer as soon as there's nisuin, even before consummation. Okay, yeah. Is that why some people, like after the chuppah, like in the yichud room, will cover their hair? That's correct. You, you, but again, I, I need to, in order to understand this, I, I, need, I need to show what in the modern wedding corresponds right. to these two stages that used to be a year apart. What about like on Tishba? Could you do Erison? Um, like that I, I'd have to check. I, I believe even on Tishba, but certainly during the nine days you can do Erison. Yeah. So you can have six witnesses? Yes. Up to so yeah, that's correct. What about the rabbi just for supervision? Oh, the, and the rabbi can be a witness too, by the way. The rabbi can be one of your witnesses uh, for that. What do you mean? Is that what you're asking? Can the rabbi be a witness? Is it technically required to have a rabbi as a supervisor in addition to the seven? I mean, six? Well, well, well as I say, uh, to, to be a valid marriage, you don't need a rabbi at all. None of this requires a rabbi. Right, you said it's just uh, a supervisor. But, 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 but we have the rabbi as a supervisor, so uh, the rabbi should be there to supervise to be sure everything is being done properly. Meaning, God forbid, don't get married without a rabbi there uh, because, you know, you're not sure you're going to be doing. Uh, although it's interesting, you know. As, as, I'll tell you this: uh, there was, a, you know, I teach in Or Sameach, you, know, you know, you may have heard of Or Sameach, and um, it came to my attention that one of the students. I mean, to me, this was absolutely childish. One of the students decided he wanted to marry somebody and do erison, and he said he didn't need a rabbi because he studied these laws, he knows these laws. So we actually went ahead and uh, did this. Uh, you know, gave a woman a ring or something, and married her. Without, uh, without a rabbi there, you know, that's very, very wrong. First of all, let me make another point. 
uh, there's another minhag, it's a very strong minhag, that you have to have a minion for marriages. Now, again, halachically you don't need a minion. Halachically you just need witnesses. And that's only two. Two witnesses. So there's no halacha that you need a minion per se, but uh, there's an old minhag that's a very strong minhag that you do not do any marriages without a minion and without a rabbi that supervises. The rabbi is given a title. He is called Misader Kiddushin, the arranger of Kiddushin. Kiddushin is the generic term for marriage, right? So Erisin, Nesuin, collectively we call it Kiddushin, sanctification. So now I, I need, before we break, because I don't, I don't want to leave you in a state of utter confusion, because until I connect it to what you're going to see today, it's not going to make sense to you, uh, the picture that I described. And that is, all of you have heard, of course, of the great, great, great uh, teacher Rashi, Rav Shlomo ben Yitzchak, who lived in France in the 1200s, I'm sorry, the 1000s around the time of the First Crusade. And Rashi is one of the greatest, greatest of all of our rabbis. His commentary on, on the Torah, his commentary on the Talmud, uh, the Rebbe devoted uh, volumes and volumes and volumes to explain uh, Rashi in many, many ways. Well, one of the interesting things that Rashi did was, Rashi took a very dramatic step. Rashi decided it was improper to separate Erson and Nisuin by a whole year. Because it was very difficult to say that this woman is married, but she cannot live with her husband under the same roof. Number one, it was conducive to immorality, either on the part, God forbid, of adultery or on the part of the husband and wife getting together when it's not proper. So Rashi took one interesting step of combining Erosin and Nisuin in one ceremony. And that is why today a woman is an Arusa for only around 10 minutes. Again, so let's trace it exactly what happens. When she's under the chuppah, I'll talk about why we got chuppah, that's what we have to talk about too. When the chassan gives her the ring and declares, and she accepts the ring, she is an arusa. Yes, she's an arusa. But we do nesuin immediately afterwards. And how do we do it? What do we do after the ring ceremony? We read the kasuva. What do we do after we read the kasuva? We recite the seven brachos. And what do we do? Now, this is a little tricky. Now, what do we do after we recite the seven brachos? The chassan and the kala go into a private room where they spend 10 minutes or so eating cake together. Now, what that is supposed to correspond with to is the chassan is bringing her into his home. Now, you may ask a question, but it's not his home. It's a room in a shul or a room in a hotel. That is why the halacha actually is that before the wedding, the chassan is supposed to rent, pay a dollar or a shekel, to the owner of the hotel or the owner of the shul 
so that the room is technically his rented room, even a rented room is good enough. So what does, this is called yichud, but yichud means togetherness, but what, what, what does it correspond to? Bringing her into his home. So 2,000 years ago, bringing her into the home actually meant the Nisuin was like a wedding procession would go to the home of the chasen, and he'd bring her in. Today, what we do is we use the yichud room for that function. And that's why it's very, very important that the chasan have ownership of the yichud room, but that ownership can be rental, rental ownership too, right? So uh, that's one thing the chasan has to be sure to do. So essentially what we do is, so, so here's an interesting thing that you, that you wouldn't notice. When you're sitting at a wedding and after the ring ceremony, you have sheva brachos, you tend to think the Sheva Brachos is the end of the marriage ceremony. It's not the end of the marriage ceremony. It's the beginning, well, the Ksuba. The Ksuba and the Sheva Brachos is the beginning of part two. It's not the end of part one. It's the beginning of part two. And 2,000 years ago, that part two wouldn't have taken place till a year later. See, it's a different picture. It's a different mental image. Most people say... Oh, the Sheva Brachos are the conclusion of the marriage ceremony. By the Sheva Brachos, you mean... Yeah, I, I don't mean the Sheva Brachos under benching. I'm talking about under the chuppah. Yeah. Under the, chuppah. the Sheva Brachos under the chuppah is part two. And that is why, here's another thing, maybe you'll notice, maybe not. There are two cups of wine. Now, wine is not required for this, but the minog is, because it's a festification, we have a cup of wine. So if you look closely... When we're going to do Ersin, the ring ceremony, there's a cup of wine, and the Masada Kedushin pronounces Borei Priyagafen on that cup of wine, and then gives to the Chasn and the Kala to drink. And then when the Sheva Brachas are recited, there's another cup of wine, and another Borei Priyagafen is made. Why do you have two cups of wine? I mean, it's one continuous mitzvah that you're doing. I make a bracha and a cup of wine, that, that should cover the whole ceremony. The answer is, Ersin and Nisuin were originally two different ceremonies that were a year apart. So of course you had two different cups of wine. You had a cup of wine when you did Ersin, and then a year later you had a festive cup of wine when you did Nisuin. So even though from Rashi's time onwards, we've united Erson and Nisuin. But we still want to keep the idea that these are two different stages in marriage. And therefore we have a separate cup of wine for Erison and a separate cup of wine for Nisuin. Right Next time you're at a chuppah, uh, pay attention why there are two cups of wine. Okay, you understand? Okay, so I hope this kind of explains the transition. Now, again, Keep in mind, I haven't talked about a lot of customs yet, about walking around seven times, chuppah even, right? That's not part of what halacha requires. There are many beautiful customs that we'll talk about briefly, but I want you to understand the halachic structure of erusin and nesuin, and collectively we call it kiddushin, which is sanctification and holiness. Yeah. Today, when is the ketubah signed? Ah, oh, oh, excellent question, excellent question. So there are actually two customs. 
Uh, some, and this is the most common custom, but it doesn't make so much sense. Some sign the ketubah before the ring ceremony. They sign it at the reception, the Kabbalah's Panim. But in Eretz Yisrael, you may notice, they often sign the ketubah after the ring ceremony. The witnesses are under the chuppah, and they sign it after the ring ceremony, and that makes absolutely perfect sense, because we're now doing the suing, and it should be signed after the ring ceremony. So, the American... When did the bride and groom sign it? Since you said in Israel, the bride and groom signed it. Well, in addition to the witnesses. Not, not, I mean, the witnesses signed... Yeah, yeah, witnesses signed it for sure. So, so the Eretz Israel custom, although it's a little cumbersome, because under the chuppah there's often... Nope, <laughs> you have to put the ksuba on somebody's shoulder and, 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 and sign it. But the Eretz Yisrael custom is to sign the ketubah after the ring ceremony, under the chuppah. Uh, that makes absolutely perfect sense because that is where it is, it is technically positioned. Okay? But nevertheless, the American custom is to sign it before. But even if you sign it before, it doesn't become activated till Nesuin, till after the ring ceremony. So it's signed, but it doesn't take effect until that moment. So even today, a woman is an Arusa. Hi, but Robert, yeah. Is it okay if I interrupt you just for yeah, one yeah, of course, second? Yeah. Sure. So hi, everybody. Um, some of you know me. I'm Susie. I am the creative director of Maya. Um, we are going to be filming. We're running super late, as you probably might know, because we were supposed to be here at 2.30. <laughs> Um, but we're going to come in, we're going to try to make as little of an interference as possible. But what I really wanted to ask is if it's possible if you guys could stay like five, seven minutes longer. Um, and we'll just like get the class, get you guys learning, you'll be smiling, enjoying yourselves. Yeah, make believe. Uh, <laughs> you'll tell a joke or something. <laughs> um, the cameramen are right behind me, so I just wanted to ask, like, I know it's a huge favor and I apologize for that, but I hope it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I'm running out of stuff here, but okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I have a question about so Shomer Nagia. Yeah. About Shomer Nagia. Yeah. Um, how do we apply that? Because in, in like historical times, Arizona, whatever, like there, was there even a concept of Shomer Nagia? Yes, yes, yes. So once, once again, uh, on Shomer Nagia generally, let me digress for a moment, there's a big, big argument, fundamental argument, between Rambam, Maimonides, and Nachmanides. According to Rambam, uh, the Isser of Nagia uh, to a man and a woman who are not married is a Torah prohibition, lest you come to intercourse and the like. It's as if the Torah made a fence around the Torah. Uh, so according to Rambam, Maimonides, Nagia, I mean affectionate touching, I don't mean accidental brushing, but affectionate touching, holding hands, hugging, kissing, is a Torah violation. According to Nachmanides, it is a rabbinic fence, so you shouldn't come to prohibited relations. But whether it's Dorais or Durabanan, there certainly was an Isser in the time of the Gemara, and this would include a, an Arus and an Arusa. So that would mean that when I, uh, when I put the ring on my w- wife's finger, I have to be careful not to touch her hand because at, wor- at most she's only in Arusa. I'm not allowed to uh, have Nagia, affectionate touching with her. But, but uh, once we're in the Yichud room, we've completed Nesuin. At that point, uh, we are allowed to physically hug and, and, and the like. Uh, which is why there's a little bit of a question because there is an old minog that some people have. 
that when the chasen and the kala come down from the chuppah, they hold hands. That's exactly my question. And there is such a custom that, that is brought down. Well, they hug well, hug, hug is more modern thing, but, but the, the old minagwa, <laughs> hugging a man. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but, uh, but uh, there certainly is an established minag that's accepted by very religious people even, that they hold hands. And the problem is, until they're in the yichud room, they haven't completed nisuin. So some want to suggest the following idea. Listen to this idea. So I have to, this is a very deep sugya, that some say that it's not the yichud room that is bringing her into his home. The chuppah itself is his home. It's a canopy. It's a roof. Uh, and therefore he should own the chuppah. He should own the chuppah, rent the chuppah. <coughs> so based on that, when they're under the chuppah and they do sheva brachas, they've already completed nesuin even before Yichud, and if they've completed soon, that would allow them even to kiss, even to hug, according to that, right? So there's a big machlokis. All of these are difficult questions, meaning the paradigmatic definition of Nesuin is he brings her home. But the question becomes, we have these surrogate homes. We have the Yichud room home. We have the Chuppah home, right? So there are different definitions of what might be considered a home for purposes of finishing Nesuin. You know, Svardim, actually don't have a yichud room at all. Svartim are relying on the chuppah as the home, right? Svartim don't have the ritual of yichud, right? So obviously they're relying on a different definition. But Ashkenazim uh, do have uh, yichud, but nevertheless, some will allow the chuppah to be enough of a home that they will allow uh, touching, holding hands when they leave the chuppah, yeah. So if a ketubah is not being signed after... After Nisuin. After Ersin, after the ring ceremony. In other words, no, no, I'm saying if it's if it's not being, oh. if it's done before Ersin. Oh, done before Ersin, is, yeah. is it only Minhag, like the differenti, like what's... Well, like basically no... what's going on is this. If a Ketubah is signed before Ersin, it's not yet valid, meaning it's like a dormant document that doesn't become valid until the Nisuin occurs. But once the Nesuin occurs, it does become valid. So the Ksuva is kosher, but it, the obligations don't take effect. So it doesn't make a difference if it's like before the Bedeke and after the Bedeke. That, that's correct, that's correct. But as I say, logically, there's a tremendous amount of logic in the cumbersome minag of Eretz Yisrael to sign it after Erisim. I mean, that does make the most sense, but that's not the most common thing that you'll see, except in Israel, in Israel you'll see it. But in Chutz Laaretz, you never see it. I, I, I've never seen in Chutzlaretz a ketubah that is signed under the chuppah. I've seen it quite a lot, and I've done it myself here in Eretz Yisrael. But, but I guess in America they don't like to do it because it is cumbersome. There's no desk. I mean, there's no. Uh, how do you sign a ketubah, you know, under the chuppah? It's not uh, so simple. But there's a lot of. It's a much more logical minute. Yeah. What exactly was the purpose for separating the Eretz Yisrael into one year? Because it yeah. seems to offer a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to understand. One, one reason might have been uh, because uh, uh, girls who were getting married tended to be very young, and some of them were child brides, father, etc. So therefore, they were given time to get ready for marriage, etc. So why couldn't they just make like, a contract? So why didn't they do, in other words, why don't they do engagement? Why did they have to halachically tie them in in case something would happen and then they'd be in trouble? It's a good question, meaning because you're asking, why doesn't the Torah 
make its erison to be the same as modern erison, which is just engagement. Right. Meaning, just, yeah. I mean, like, right? Why make it such a drastic? Not, like you're not allowed to yeah. act like you're married. But yeah. You are yeah. It, it, it's a hard institution to understand. I again, I, I I have the same question. It's been bothering me for many many years. So you can be learning something for many many years and not fully understand it. I mean, that's why Rashi, what Rashi did seems so logical and so self-evident that you wonder why the Torah didn't, didn't do what Rashi did. The Torah separates Erison and Nesuin by up to a, up to a year. It could always be shortened by mutual consent. Uh, and yet, Rashi said, not a good idea. Let's combine the two ceremonies. So it is, it is a good question, something to think about. Yeah. Um, why does a woman not provide? Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so let's explain covering hair for a moment. There is a din in the Torah, and it's in the Torah itself, that a married woman must cover her hair. Now, this is, at least when she's in public, private, in her home, that's a separate thing, but the halacha absolutely requires that she cannot go publicly with uncovered hair. This is an absolutely unique law of modesty. It is the only law of feminine modesty that differentiates between married women and single women. Every other law of tzniyas, whether it's knees or arms or whatever it is, applies married or single, at least above a certain age. Right? There's no rule that single women uh, can be less modest than married women. Everybody has to be the same. The only exception, so the only exception is hair, strangely enough. That is, married women have this additional requirement of covering hair, and single women don't cover their hair. Right? Something you think about. Maybe we'll talk about it a little later. But I just want to focus on the immediate question. When must a married woman cover her hair? When she becomes an Arusa? When she becomes a Nesua? Or only after consummation of the marriage? So remember, so remember I told you that whenever you're given a halakhic question and you're not, you're not sure of the answer, just say it's a machlokas and you're almost certainly going to be correct. Right? You'll always get credits for saying it's a machlokas. And indeed, it is a machlokas. The strictest view says, as soon as a woman has a rusin, the ring ceremony, she must cover her hair. That actually means, therefore, when she walks under the chuppah, since she's going to have a ring, her hair is already covered. Most people do not follow that. The second view says, as soon as she becomes nesua, she should cover her hair, which means uh, the yichud room is considered to be the home. So when she leaves the yichud room, her hair should be covered. The third view says, she is not chayevet in Kisoi Harosh until there is physical consummation. So that would normally mean in the normal course yeah. of events, the next morning That's most people. when she comes out. Uh, different people. I, I, I don't know exactly most people, but, but certainly you can, you can follow that lenient view uh, if, if you want. Uh, there is certainly enough authority to follow that, that it's consummation that creates the obligation of Kisei Arosh, and then we get into many, many questions about Kisei Arosh. For example, how does it apply to a woman who then gets divorced or widowed? Now, when she was married, her hair had to be covered. Uh, now she's no longer married, right? Now she's single. 
divorce or widow, but she's single, uh, does she have to keep her hair covered? So the truth of the matter is, she does, actually. But you talk, you know, if anyone has that situation, they should talk to, to a posik or a rav, because some will say, if this would impair the dating process, there may be some room for leniency, uh, but again, I'm not, it's never been clear to me why does it impair the dating process unless she's, unless she's not revealing that she's divorced, which is not a good idea anyway, then a religious man would, would know. But, but nevertheless, if it does affect her ability to uh, get a shidduch or whatever, there are different heterim for it. But as a general rule of thumb, uh, even a divorced woman uh, has to keep her hair covered, which is a little strange. Why is a divorced woman treated differently than a single woman? Why, why, why is that? If you're going to tell me a married woman is a higher level of tzniyot, why would that apply? But the getter is, the definition is, that once you've reached a higher level of holiness, we have a general rule in Judaism, we go up in holiness, we never go down. And the covering hair is not seen as a restriction, it is seen as an augmentation of holiness. And that augmentation of holiness does not disappear even if the marriage, unfortunately, has not worked out. Yeah. Can you um, review, please, for me, the three different opinions of when she covers her hair? Yeah, yeah. Opinion number one, which is not followed that much, is she is chayeves to cover her hair the moment she becomes a married woman, which is the ring ceremony, Arusa. Now, since under the chuppah, it's a little awkward to start covering her hair, <laughs> so that would mean practically her hair would have to be covered before the chuppah. That's correct. That's correct. Second view is the chiyav of covering hair is upon nisuin and not erisin. And since we view the idea that nisuin does not take place until the chassan brings her into his home, which is the yichud room, that would mean the chiyav of covering her hair would be after she leaves the yichud room, when she comes back to the party, uh, she would cover her hair. Uh, and a third view says that the chiyav of covering hair is connected to consummation and intimacy, uh, which would mean, in other words, she would not cover her hair till after she was with her husband. So practically, that would mean the next morning she would come with, with, uh, with covered hair. So there are three customs. And many, 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 almost nobody does the first custom. Uh, so the two customs you'll see are either number two or number three. And, you know, I'll leave it to you. Uh, you can certainly rely on number three if that is your preference. Yeah. So why, sorry if I yeah. just missed this, but yeah. so why is it, like, exactly that only married women have to cover their hair? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a, again, a very, very excellent question. But the concept is this. The concept is that a married woman, a married man as well, have achieved a higher level of consecration and holiness and service to God and therefore the standards of modesty and sneos are increased and enhanced. And uh, the hair is not like you know, an exposed uh, body. It's not as sexually alluring, but it does represent a certain aspect of your personality that now needs to be contained and directed into a sense of inwardness. And therefore, it represents a dedication to a higher, a higher calling. And my point was that once you've achieved that higher level of sanctity, even when there's a divorce, you know, you don't lose that sanctity. There's still that elevation. 
Now, I want to point out one thing that's, that's important to know. The idea that married women should cover their hair used to be a common assumption even among non-Jewish societies. If you look at the pictures of the women in colonial, colonial times, or the 1800s in the United States at least. Bonnets. You see bonnets. A bonnet, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. A bonnet was a common garment that married women wore, which means it's interesting how we've lost this intuition. Like now we have to look at it like, oh, it's another rule that Judaism, you know, make. A bonnet's a hat, so what's wrong? Well, okay, that's right. Yeah. No, 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 but a lot of, well, okay, but a lot of times it was after they were married. I mean, sometimes they were extra sneers, just like uh, women have braided hair, whatever it could be. But, but, but it was considered to be an obligation for, for married women. So it's interesting that what people used to intuitively, <laughs> what they would intuitively understand are things that are just so foreign to us today. And now it becomes like a whole thing that makes no sense to us today and everything else, yeah. Are there cases today in Israel or other places of people getting married full, like in the traditional separate stage way? I'm not, I'm not aware of it. I'm really not aware of it. I think, it's in, it's, in fact, it's quite amazing just in terms of the halachic history how the action of a single rabbi, even as, even as one as great as Rashi, would literally change the whole wedding ceremony, everywhere, uh, to a degree of 100%. <laughs> that Rashi's takana, Rashi's enactment, everybody does it. Ashkenazim, Svaridim, Timonim, nobody has this waiting period anymore. So it's universal. Yeah? Is consummation the night after Required? Required, yeah. Okay, so this is, this is a delicate uh, topic. Uh, obviously, it is called a mitzvah. Consummation is part of a mitzvah. But, but, but it all depends on, on being comfortable with each other. So it may be very, very common, very common, that uh, they get, need to get to know each other, they need to feel comfortable with each other. So if they need to wait a day or two days, then they're entitled to wait a day or two days. Uh, it, it all depends on being comfortable with each so other. So if you're going with a set opinion on hair covering. Like, so let me tell you what the problem is. I mean, yeah. the problem is you don't want to... I mean, you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to advertise to people, you know, what uh, your sexual relationship is. So uh, I would not encourage you. You know, take take all the time you need, but but don't make don't make a public statement about uh, what your situation is. That that kind of uh, is, yeah. Yeah. Um, we went to Sagwa in uh, Tish and Mea Sharim and we asked the, with these girls that had like engagement rings and these like jewelry, and we asked them like what they were from. And they said like, oh, we're engaged, we're waiting, a year, like, we're like betrothed, and we're going to get married in a year's time. Like that's what that's they. Um, okay, but, but now the, maybe, maybe they said a year, but they don't mean they, they don't mean this. They do not mean this. So, so why would those groups then be like, we're giving you a ring, we're giving you the like jewelry, but then in like a year's time? No, well, well, why a year is why they just like they just. I mean, I mean, I mean, listen. This is an example of something that may be based on the original thing, but I can assure you, it is not halachic erson. Uh, it's engagement. It's engagement for a year. In other words, uh, they're using erson in the modern sense, not in the halachic sense. The halachic erson we do not do today, except under the chuppah itself. Why does a woman's status of holiness increase? Um, after she has a child is one thing, but with the marriage, that's only an obligation on the man, right? An obligation, so, yeah. Right, so what is her, like why is, does her status of holiness change 
based on, like I understand for him, he's reached a different level because he's now done something that the Torah has asked of him. Um, and for a woman after she goes through childbirth, that I understand, but for a woman just after she got married, what really has well, changed uh, her and Well, yeah, yeah. It's, again, it's a good question. Remember that uh, when Hashem made Chava, he said it is not good for man to be alone. Let me make an azer. Let me make a helpmate to be opposite him. And helpmate in modern parlance sometimes sounds like subordinate, but really keep in mind, Hashem is called our helpmate. Hashem is called our ozer. The same term that is used for the woman is used for Hashem. And when a woman assumes the godly role of being the help and the foundation of the husband's home, she has now taken on the function of God that is our helpmate and our support in life. So as a result, she is acquiring a godly function by being the foundation of a home. And this is totally apart from being a mother. Being a mother is a very, very important thing. But one has to understand that the importance of a wife is not only because she's a mother. She is the foundation of the husband's existence, even if there are no children at all. Yeah. Why don't well, first of all, our hair is already covered a little bit. <laughs> well, maybe I am, but okay. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the re- the reason uh, it's a good, it's a good question, but the reason is once again is that part of the heightened sinias is because there is something alluring and attractive about, about hair, although it's not a it's not as alluring as, uh, let's say, exposed parts of the body. And uh, that really applies, uh, women's effect on men is not the same as man's effect on women in that, in that sense. So in that sense, you, you look at covering hair as an augmentation of the laws of sneeze. I mean, you can ask the same question. Uh, we say a woman should not have, you know, uh, whatever, exposed arms or whatever it would be. A man can have it. Now, what's the difference? Uh, the answer is... Uh, a man gets turned on by something, a woman doesn't get turned on, you know, you know, whatever it is. So this falls under that genre of uh, relative uh, attractiveness. By the way, that's the whole issue. I don't want to get into other controversies about the wig, the, the shetel versus the, the techel. I know Chabad believes in the wig, right? The Rebbe, the Rebbe said the wig. But in my neighborhood, we have constant signs, warnings about, warning about the evils of the wig. Uh, no one should wear the wig. Uh, because uh, if the idea is hair is alluring, then you know you have a shetel that looks nicer than your hair. You know. Uh, what neighborhood is that? No, shetel is a wig. No, what neighborhood is that? Oh, uh, but really, all, all the Haredi neighborhoods in Yerushalayim uh, have uh, wall posters against uh, wearing shetels. It's a big thing. Americans do it. Americans not just Chabad. We always know that it has nothing to do with attraction. Covering your face yeah. makes you less attractive. That's that's correct, uh, but it's a little confusing because uh, it's, it, you're you're right. It's not all because number one, if it would be about attraction, then there should not be a difference between married and single, right? Yeah, yeah I understand. On the other hand, there, there are also references to the attraction, so it's a little complicated. But the Rebbe felt uh, the Rebbe himself felt, and most American, even non-Chabad uh, yeshiva couples, women wear wigs, felt that the shetel is better. Shetel is the wig is better than any other head covering because you can cover a hundred percent. Any other anything else like a kerchief or whatever it is, there's always going to be uh, something that's hanging up. Yeah. Well, then why don't married Jewish women just wrap a tichel like a hijab? 
Because that way you can like guarantee. Yeah, well, some, 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 some do, some do. Have you seen? Have you seen it around walking around? You see, uh, in fact, there are women who cover even cover their faces. They walk in full uh, mask masks. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, you know, some do it. But I think others say that number one, that that itself is attracting attention, and the whole idea of sneeze is not to attract attention. And number two. Uh, it is also important that a woman retain a certain attractiveness, at least uh, in her fa- within her family. So, to totally obliterate uh, that is also going to an extreme. Yeah. Can you talk, uh, without going into wigs versus temples, um, can you talk about why in some communities, or, or like how valid is it? There are definitely women I know who um, say that covering hair is just covering some part of the hair, um, so they'll wear like a a large headband or something that, like, let's say, covers from here back, um, and they they're not doing it um, because they're not ready to do the mitzvah or, or whatever. They're just they're of the opinion that that constitutes covering hair versus the opinion that yeah. you should cover your whole. Yeah, and again, this needs a share of itself. Let, let me just say that by and large, that is just halachically invalid. The okay. only halachic leniency that is legitimate in public, in public, in the house, there are different things, but in public. The only halakhic legitim- uh, leniency that's legitimate, and even that's very questionable, is some permit up to two fingers in width, meaning to say, if you have, let's say, a head covering, like a, a techel, a scarf, and it leaves up to two fingers across your whole forehead, there is some, some basis to permit that. But to have all of your hair hanging down, like some people wear a baseball cap, uh, and the like, and they have a ponytail, that's absolutely not valid. And certainly a big uh, headband is not valid. The most leniency you have are the two, two fingers. And even that is very questionable. Now again, I am not talking about in the house, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about outside in, outside in the street. Yeah. During the summer program, we actually went in depth with the head covering. Yeah. I mean, I was there, no one else was. Okay. But the teacher said that a woman who puts anything on her head, that like, even if it's not like, as halachically valid as having two tefachim, it's still holding by the... Like, you're still covering your head, showing that you are a married woman. That it's not like you shouldn't wear nothing. Okay, okay, so that's that's consistent with the philosophy that, uh, you know, uh, doing a little bit is better than doing nothing. And I think that's a general valid hashkafa. Uh, But all I'm saying is, uh, you're not fully fulfilling the halacha. Now, uh, is the point that, okay, I'm not doing it 100% correctly, but should I do something 50% correctly? I, I think that's a good philosophy generally. Uh, you know, if somebody is not keeping all of Shabbos, keep some of Shabbos, you know, so I, I would say the same thing for that, yeah. Is there any, is there any halachic relation to a bedekin? Yes, oh, we didn't get to that. So bedekin is, is, um, is minag, right? It's not, not, not a, a requirement. And it's derived, again, I do have to go, I'll, I'll leave this for next uh, class, but uh, the Bedeckin is connected to the idea that uh, when Rivka was brought as a little child and she saw her husband Yitzchak, so it says she covered her face in modesty, and that's the idea that before a woman gets married, she's now indicating that uh, she's being veiled, she's no longer available to the general, uh, to the general public. So the Bedeckin is a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. But the groom is veiling her. Yeah, so the groom does it because uh, some, there are some opinions that say this. Okay, it gets even more confusing. I mentioned Nisuin, and part of Nisuin 
is bringing him into his, bringing her into his home, which is either the Yichud room or the Chuppah. But there's another view of Nesuin that when he spreads a garment over her face, that is a form of Nesuin. So according to that, the Badekin might be Nesuin, but then you get into a strange, bizarre thing. How can you do Nesuin before you do Ersin? <laughs> we do a Badekin before the ring ceremony. So how could there be a Nesuin ceremony? Number one, before Kasuba, possibly, which might be the reason to sign the Kasuba before. All right, so, so there, there are a lot of problems here, but some actually say, but some, some say, minority, that Nisuin is, Badekin is Nisuin, and that's why they require witnesses at a Badekin. I don't know if you've ever seen this. They sometimes will say there should be two witnesses at a Badekin because it's part of a Nisuin ceremony. Does so, that mean he has to pay for the veil? Yeah, according to that, uh, he would have to pay for the veil. All right, anyway, uh, I think this is it until after Sukkah, so I wish you all again a Gemar Chasimatova and a wonderful Sukkah. And uh, we have good, good health. Take care. Can I ask you a question? Why? So, like, I was once sitting at like, a table or whatever, and my ring like, has writing inside it. So, this guy was like, oh, can I see it to see what the writing is? So, like, I gave it, and he's like, no, put it on the table. So, I put it on the table. And then, when he's like handing it back to me, like, wouldn't give it to me in my hand?